Welcome to Food and Wine with Chef Jamie Gwen. Celebrate food and life by learning about the culinary scene around the world. Speaking with chefs, artists and food makers, farmers, authors and tastemakers who are passionate about everything delicious. A very good weekend to you food lovers. Chef Jamie Gwen in your radio and a very big football weekend to you. I hope you have a delicious menu planned and may the best dish win. This is your culinary-focused lifestyle show where every weekend we obsess over what to eat and drink next. It's like having a food-loving best friend to distill the culinary world into must-do, must-eat, and must-know recommendations. So if you're hungry, well, then you are in the right place. I cover food and wine and cocktails, travel, health, a bit of tech, I talk on the environment, and I'm all about living the best life. So, if you love to cook or you love to eat, then we can definitely be friends. I'm always serving up seconds at chefjamie.com, and you'll find podcasts of shows you might have missed on iTunes, of course. You can also find my daily dish on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Chef Jamie Gwen. So, let's get this fabulous food party started now, shall we? I like to kick off this show, as I have for the last 16 years, celebrating on the radio, with a tutorial of sorts, a method, instruction, chef's insight or inspiration to make you the best cook you know. And so this is Porchetta 101. If you love pig in all its forms the way I do, then eating or better yet making Porchetta is cause for celebration. Now, traditional porchetta has its roots in Italy. It's a crazy, delicious, whole, boned and roasted pig, and it's seasoned with lots of salt and pepper and garlic and wild fennel. And when you travel to Italy, you've seen the trucks that sell sandwiches or paninis topped with the sliced, succulent, roasted pork. And you couldn't help but notice the hordes of people that line up to buy these delicious sandwiches, which are created by roasting these whole small pigs in special ovens that are built right into the trucks. It's very much a tradition. Now, the trucks are often at special celebrations, on farmer's market days between the stalls of goods, on busy weekend afternoons in crowded piazzas, and a porchetta sandwich is beloved by Italians. It is uniquely delicious and served thinly sliced or shaved and stuffed into crusty rolls or between slabs of focaccia. Sometimes you'll see the ends, the crispy bits, chunked and added on top to gild the lily. And because it's boneless, every slice has spirals of tender meat and lush fat and the crunchy cracklins. And there just might not be anything better. Now, Lazio fiercely guards its reputation as the birthplace of porchetta. Porchetta is said to have originated in Lazio, which is a region of West Central Italy. Although um, there are uh, other areas in Umbria that fight for the rights. But its history dates back to the Roman Empire. Now... This is known because its processing methods are even mentioned in some of the works by scholars and artists as far back as 400 BC. Porchetta was said to be the favorite dish of Emperor Nero, who was very famous for his refined palate. As far back as Roman times, the preparation and the seasoning of the pig included slow roasting it on a spit over a wood-burning fire. 
even better if you ask me. (laughs) Today, it's often done in a gas oven, and you can do it in your gas oven, actually, and it is still decadent. Now, sometimes it is referred to as Italian pulled pork, but it's fatty and it's savory, and it is not hard to make. Now, you could cheat, by the way, whether you're planning a shindig for the big game this weekend or you want to throw an impressive Saturday night dinner with friends. There are many high-end gourmet retailers that sell a cooked porchetta in the deli section of your favorite food store. And you could buy a big hunk of it. And in about 30 minutes flat, you have a decadent meal with luscious leftovers. You simply place the already cooked porchetta in a pan with some stock or broth, and you tightly cover it with foil, and you steam it at 400 degrees for 20 minutes. So it stays nice and moist, and it heats throughout. And then you remove the foil, and you broil it to recreate that crispy skin. But really, I think you should make it just once. Because once you do, you will crave it. And really, the leftovers are spectacular. There is almost nothing that is piggy that is better than porchetta. So here's how. The recipe I use creates a pork sandwich that is very similar in flavor to those tasty paninis, but it has much less effort. So I say, ask your butcher to butterfly the pork roast for you to simplify the preparation, or you can do it at home. The pork is really fabulously flavorful. And some people will use pork belly or they will stuff pork belly into a pork butt. But I go the simpler route. I do use a pork butt and pancetta. And I like the flavor and the acidity of red wine. So mine is done just that way. Now, it does take some advanced planning. It's not something you'll make tonight because it needs to sit in the fridge and let all of its flavors meld and get happy together. But once you go to serve it, you could either uh, carve it or slice it into, say, half-inch thick rounds. Some people like a nice hunky piece of porchetta. I like to shave it thin. I'll put out some rolls, ciabatta preferably, some spicy peppers packed in oil, uh, some caramelized onions, sometimes some sort of herb sauce like a chimichurri or a pesto. If it's a leftover sandwich, I mix the pesto with mayonnaise. Sometimes I go mustard, but I have to tell you, it doesn't matter how you serve it. It's just so good. So you'll take this pork butt and you'll butterfly it uh, or you'll cut it open so that it lays flat, leaving that last inch or so when you get to the bottom of that uh, cylindrical pork butt intact, right? So that you get a flattened piece of pork, a big flattened roast, or again, ask your butcher to do it for you. And it ends up being about a rectangle and it should be no more than an inch thick if you're using my recipe. You place fennel seeds and garlic, rosemary, freshly chopped, some salt, pepper, and pancetta in the food processor. Now the pancetta is where the fat comes in and you pulse it until it's mixed well. Then you add a half a cup of red wine. Oh, it's only getting better. And you spread this wet, wonderful mixture over the opened pork butt. And then you roll it up like a roulade and you tie it with kitchen twine. 
And it's just that easy. Now, I wrap it tightly in aluminum foil and I put it in the fridge. And I say minimum 12 hours, but up to a couple of days even better. And then it takes about four and a half to five hours or so in a low, slow oven at 250 degrees to roast to the ultimate tenderness. Then I unwrap the foil packet. I turn on the broiler and I brown it all over until the edges are crispy and delicious. And there you have it. That is to me the ultimate porchetta. So if you're hungry for more porchetta, email me at jamie, J-A-M-I-E at chefjamie.com and I will gladly send you my recipe. And that is Porchetta 101. Okay, now on to food news for the week. At Kind Bars, they believe that kindness can change the world. And that's why they're on a mission, to make the world a little kinder. They have been since they were founded in 2004. They call it the Kind Movement. And by the way, I like it. I like Kind Bars too. I'm not the only one. (laughs) Uh, I know you're out there. There are a lot of Kind Bar lovers. They sell millions of bars each year. They're full of nuts and seeds and all natural ingredients. And if I'm looking for a packaged protein bar, you know, need it last minute, Uh, I choose kind when I'm not making energy bars from scratch. Now, at kind, they say, do the kind thing for your body, your taste buds, and your world. So they're pleasing your taste buds because they just released a new flavor profile. And if you like it hot, you're going to love these new flavors. They're called kind, sweet, and spicy bars. And they're packed with 10 grams of plant-based protein. So if you prefer things a little spicy or unusual or exciting, look for the new kind jalapeno bar, the sweet cayenne barbecue bar, and the Thai sweet chili bar because they are sure to get your taste buds dancing. And so now, kind lovers, you are in the know. And please don't touch your dial because we have so much delicious conversation coming up. Oh, yes. My friend Claire Tansy with the warmth of comfort food. And she's making it uncomplicated. You'll love her dishes. Also, Stacey Adamondo of Savour Magazine, editor-in-chief, is sharing their global baking issue. And then before the end of the hour... We are going to share the collective strength of women in the global economy. So there's lots more delicious conversation, lots more to eat, and lots more inspiration. I'm Chef Jamie Gwen in your radio. I'll take a quick break and come back. Please don't go away. We do have the best culinary thinkers on this show, and we're dishing. Welcome back, Chef Jamie Gwen in your radio. It is bitter cold and rainy in most of the parts of the country, and perfect for comfort food, right? 
Claire Tansy knows how to chase the chill away. She's all about making dishes delicious, but never difficult. Her cookbook, Uncomplicated, Amazon Top Rated, is all about a happier, easier way to get a homemade dinner on the table. Claire Tansy is an accomplished chef and a busy working mom. She knows how to make classic dishes by the traditional method, but after years of working, Claire has figured out a better way of cooking that doesn't take more time than it needs to. Now, she first graced this show last year when her book released to rave reviews, and I am delighted that she's going to cook with us through 2019. We are newfound food-loving friends, and I'm calling Claire our resident uncomplicated chef expert, and she is back by popular demand. Hi, Claire. Hello. (laughs) So glad to have you. So glad to be foodie friends. Yes, me too. Thank you. (laughs) Um, Okay, I know where you live. You are a Canadian girl. Uh-huh. Right. Yeah. And um, when we last spoke, it was like uh, the equivalent in your Celsius to my Fahrenheit of 22 below. Yeah. Right. OK. So does does that make you think steaming bowls of beef stew and baked rigatoni? Because I don't think you should leave the house. And you know what? <laughs> Sometimes we don't. Well, right. what we often would do on a weekend day is we will go out and do some kind of you know, outdoor winter activity in the morning. So the other day we had a huge dump of snow, um, and so we went out and went tobogganing all morning. And then you come home and you close the door and you do not leave the house again because it is too cold out there. Well, of course. So that's when you just turn on the oven and embrace mm. your, you know, the indoor indoor home life. Yes, and it's your favorite time to be in the kitchen, I know, because I think... From um, what I've learned about you, I think it's really a time of discovery. Like, do you find that this is your experimental phase? Most definitely, particularly because it feels like I have more time. Mm. You know, I'm not trying to get out to, uh, you know, go for a bike ride or, uh, you know, go for a walk or we're not hanging out at the park with the kids as much. It's time to be inside and also just to turn on a movie and snuggle yeah. Yeah. and throw something mm. in the oven for a couple of hours and, and see what, her, what turns out. I agree. So what do you crave at this time of year? And why do you think that, that comfort food is just so darn comforting? I always think comfort food, it just makes us feel good. It's sort of like getting a hug from your food. Yeah. You know, if you're having a bad day or you're feeling absolutely frozen, it's like wrapping yourself in a fleece blanket, but you get to eat it. <laughs> right. You know, and so for me, it's something usually pretty old-fashioned, but also kind of simple. Um, You know, I love a braised beef anything, you know, something like a pot roast, a beef stew, even Mm -hmm. something like a meatloaf. It's just simple, but it's hearty and it's warming. It's soft, it sticks to your ribs, and it makes you feel really full. It does. It fills you up. I agree. And I also love that comfort food in general, to me, is... um, is a sort of bulk recipe in that you can multiply it proportionally. (laughs) You always have leftovers. There's something very like wonderfully gluttonous about it. Because if I'm going to make meatloaf, I'm having a sandwich tomorrow. So there has to be enough. Right, exactly. Um, And when we have pot roast, we have pot roast one night. The next night we would have leftovers. The third night I would take sort of all those scrappy bits from the bottom of the pan and the the sauce that comes with it and throw that over pasta and make a nice salad on the side. So it's, yeah, definitely a three-mealer. Oh, that's nice. Oh, we should talk about that. Okay, how to extend the comfort food dishes to recreate them. Um, Mm -hmm. If you would talk about some of your favorite 
classic comfort foods. I already chose some from Uncomplicated, like uh, coconut chicken curry for tonight. Mm-hmm. I love the ethnic influence. Uh, mm-hmm. I'd like to. I'd like for you to share your creamy lentil soup too. Oh, that's such an easy one, and that really warms you from the inside out. And talk about Uncomplicated. It's one of the what I think of the anchor recipes of my Uncomplicated cookbook. Yes, it's just dried red lentils. Um, boiled up in water. You don't have to saute anything. And then you just cook a little bit of butter with a whole bunch of sweet spices that we often associate more with the holidays, like ginger and cinnamon um, and a few of the Indian spices. And then you pour that into the cooked lentils um, with a nice big dollop of honey Mm. and a little bit of sweetness there. And what results is this just magnificent soup. So easy to do. And it's creamy without having any cream added to it whatsoever. It's got that little bit of butter, but no cream whatsoever. Right. But just those long cooked lentils, Mm. as they break down and they kind of form themselves into a, oh, just a rich, creamy soup. Uh, It's really quite special. And that is something that I would make at the beginning of the week and then have it for my lunches. I work from home and it's cold here, so I like having a hot lunch. Sure. Um, And just have that through the week or even turn it into supper with some rice on the side and a green vegetable. Oh, that's nice. And then you could garnish in a, a bevy of ways. Uh, you could, uh, I'm thinking like a goat cheese crouton. Oh, yes, please. Right? Sign me up for a goat cheese crouton. Yes, a or goat cheese. Any kind of a crouton, really. Walnut. Would be great. Yes. Or, uh, I mean, frizzled leeks, uh, yes. lot, lots of choices. What I love about your recipes is that they're to me is a lesson in all of them. So what you just mentioned in putting the spices into butter, that concept, you and I, that method, know, we know that as blooming. Mm-hmm. And it is one simple thing that you can do that makes your dishes come alive with flavor. So by adding dried spices to a li- a straight to a liquid, you don't get, I feel, as much flavor. But if you bloom them, sometimes in a dry pan or toast them in a dry pan, if you bloom them in the butter, you get this aromatic fragrance that permeates the dish greater than if you were just to measure and dump. Do you agree? I really, yeah. I really love that. And the concept, is, like, I love to get into the science of these flavors yes. sometimes. And what, what I learned, and I can't remember when it was, but that some flavors, really, they don't kind of come to life unless they um, come in contact with a particular other um, sort of ingredient. So some flavors come to life when you add water, some when you add fat, like Mm -hmm. butter or oil, Mm -hmm. um, and some when you add alcohol. So that's why like a a vodka penne is so tasty in its own way. Mm. Um, And so that's Mm. really interesting to think about when you're building flavors. Yes, something, if you put the dried spices right into the liquid, that would taste one way. If you put them into the fat first and yeah, bloom them, as you said, and get them going in that way, it's a very different level of flavor and a di- very different kind of, I don't know, n- nuance or, 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 uh, or perfume. Yes, like the depth is different. And yes. I think if we tested it side by side, it would be evident. Mm-hmm. I really do. Will you come back again as we planned for this year and we will continue to uncomplicate things to eat well? It would be my great pleasure. I would love it. Thank you, Claire, so much. In Uncomplicated by Claire Tanzi, you will find out how to make delicious veggie side dishes in five minutes flat or a, a gorgeous chocolate layer cake with just a bowl and a spoon because she is all about not breaking a sweat. 
And how could you not love it? Claire says that food should bring joy above all else. And I agree. So get the book and cook along with us because Claire will be back to make it uncomplicated. Follow her at Tansy Claire, T-A-N-S-E-Y. C-L-A-I-R-E. And stay tuned because there's so much more to eat coming up in your radio. Chef Jamie Gwen, be right back. is your fetish? Well, then I'm supplying the tools. Chef Jamie Gwen in your radio. We're connecting through baking in this next conversation. So if the rich scent of chocolate and cinnamon and toasted nuts is your allure, well, then don't touch your dial. The global baking issue of Savour Magazine is out now, and it's chock full of glorious new ideas and inspiration and recipes to delight your palate. If you consider yourself a baker or you just relish in cakes and cookies and indulging your sweet tooth, then you'll want to read it cover to cover. It is another glorious issue of Savour Magazine, the culinary publication for very serious food lovers, of which I am a huge fan. And they're celebrating the best baked goods in a diverse range of bakers. Savour's editor-in-chief, Stacey Adamondo, is back to dish. Hey, Stacey. Hi, Jamie. Love <laughs> being here. I'm glad to have you back. Thank you. Uh, the issue is beautiful. Once again, congratulations. And Thank you so much. Steeped in knowledge. I wonder, what was it like to connect with worldwide bakers and pastry chefs whose very exacting science makes for incredible warmth and homey goodness. It's always been a great dichotomy to me that, you know, the concept, the science of baking. Oh, yeah. Well, I I personally think that there's a dormant baker in all of us. And I Hmm. say this in the issue because I think it's a, a topic that, you know, can sound intimidating to people. Everybody thinks of fine pastry and um, you know, classic baking around the world, and they sort of think, well, that's not me. You know, I'm more of a box brownies kind of a baker. But I think that if you have great teachers and you have great inspiration, anybody can be an amazing baker. So we not only tried to get people into the kitchen and, yes, take risks and make experiments in, in baking, but also to read about the bakers all around the world who work with, you know, a similar set of romance and um, love behind their baking, but also different ingredients, um, different techniques, and a whole different sort of uh, baker's kitchen. Yes. So it was a really fun combination of inspiration and just, you know, uh, ideas. It had to be very insightful and educational as well. I think that if you look at baking from the perspective that the science has been mastered with a tried and true recipe, and that if you go into it with the no-fail attitude then there's a, an extraordinary reward to reap. And I felt like reading through the issue, I couldn't wait to make these recipes because for how many decades or generations or uh, testing uh, had they gone through to prove that, you know, I too can make the ultimate crumb cake. Maybe we should start there. Uh, uh, yeah, that's yes. a perfect place to start. So this was, you know, I, I basically tackled crumb cake from the perspective of nostalgia first. So I think in America, and it sounds like a lot of parts of Europe too, 
everybody has that memory of crumb cake growing up. So mine was peeking into that little plastic window in the box of Entenmann's at the grocery store. And sort of, you know, my parents kind of like tapping us on the hand when we were eating all the crumb off the top of the cake. Um, But I I communicated with a lot of bakers from different parts of the world who also had a similar memory. They said, well, I discovered it on a road trip to college or a rest stop or a great cafe or diner that was by my house when, when I was growing up. So I think it's one of those things that we don't see that much baked in home anymore, but I'm not really sure why, because people have such wonderful memories associated with it. Mm-hmm. So I wanted to bring this back into the culinary repertoire for people. And we did that by going to, you know, the, the crumb cakes roots in Germany and saying, wow, you know, actually German crumb cake was a bit difficult. It was a yeasted cake. It had multiple layers of streusel in it. Um, streusel is the crumb. And, um, you know, it was a little bit of a more, you know, a, a restaurant and baker uh, good than, than something that you would make at home. But I think the New York-style crumb cake is actually a very, very simple, approachable recipe. It's a basic yellow cake recipe with a very easy, you know, make-by-hand crumb on top. Mm-hmm. And you kind of can't really mess it up. I mean, no. you could, but I think we set you up for success in the issue. Yes. So we did the classic New York-style crumb cake, and then we did some variations on it, which we want to empower people to play around with. Um, one of them that I'm obsessed with was a pistachio <gasps> and chocolate marbled crumb cake. Yes, that's um, what I'm making. It's so good. It's like oh. the type of thing that you can get away with eating it for breakfast because it's bittersweet chocolate and it's mm-hmm. not at all too sweet. Um, mm. But also it makes a perfect dessert, you know, just that little bite of something with the nuts and a little bit of chocolate. It's it's so good. Oh, does it look good? I have to tell you, that's what I had <laughs> chosen. First recipe, chocolate pistachio crumb cake. And I have crumb cake memories like you do. My mom always searching for the ultimate recipe. And then in our travels, wherever we would go, crumb cake was the go-to. You know, if oh, if there was so a crumb cake, yes, in a bakery, you had to try it. So I feel like I've tested like them. good, hefty portions, yes. right? Like there's a huge square <laughs> of crumb square. cake and you can kind of yes. eat it on like a napkin or a paper towel. Like it's so informal. It's true. It's comforting. That's yeah, oh, wonderful. Great. Uh, the million dollar question, when are we going to Pinerolo, Italy, you and I? <laughs> can we go? Can we go now? Uh, you know I'm always game for a trip to Italy, and I personally have not been to Pinerolo, but our writer who went to this to report this story basically said that at all times of year, it smells like Christmas in the town because they're constantly oh. baking panettone. Oh, can you imagine? So, <laughs> I can. I, I feel like it transported me there. Uh-huh. Um, so, so panettone, okay, this is a divisive topic because I think a lot of Americans have seen or had panettone from literally like a, you know, pharmacy or, a, <laughs> you know, supermarket or something. Yeah, the and boxed can, the boxed kind. Yeah, it can be kind of dry and sometimes they have sort of like liqueurs in there and it can make it taste really bitter and the fruit is 100 years old on the inside and it's just not really that appetizing when it's done poorly. But true northern Italian panettone is an absolute gift into the baking world. Um, It's custardy. It's got this beautiful, eggy, yellow interior that's moist. I mean, it can sit on a shelf for a year and still be as moist as the day it was made. Um, Beautiful, plump, dried fruits from all over Italy. Um, You know, they just use the finest ingredients, and it's a real art to make, so... 
we went to Italy to the to one of the sources, um, this beautiful artisanal factory in, in northern mm-hmm. Italy, and just learned about the small town, you know, true authentic way of making it. Yes. And then we also provided some, you know, types that you can buy at home from Italy and then also, you know, from around the U.S., um, bakers who have become obsessed with it and tried to really master it like the original. It's a beautiful story to read and to learn about, to see the panettone uh, cooling. They're on baker's racks upside down. So I just think the process is so fascinating. And I think what is most important and what comes through is this is not fruitcake. This is this delicate, (laughs) beautiful Italian legacy of a bread, really, that is very much prized. And once you've had a beautiful panettone, then there is just no second best. Absolutely. And I think it gets shelved as just a holiday, you know, because primarily they do eat it around Christmas time in Italy. But I think it gets shelved as that where it can be so much more. And if you keep it around a little bit more, I think people will get used to it and kind of work it into their their everyday. Mm. Yeah, grow to love it. It makes the best French toast. At least in oh, in does. my house, so yes. Good. Or bread pudding, too. Oh, yes. Very, very good. For sure. Can we talk about the Village Baker, please? Making soft Bavarian pretzels from 12 generations of family knowledge. I, I mean, that's ama- unbelievable? unbelievably amazing. So I think the, you know, the bread movement in Paris and in the United States kind of took off a few years ago. And all of a sudden, bakers wanted to go back to the old ways of doing things. And a lot of times that meant not using store-bought yeast, but instead using natural yeast from the air and the surroundings that, you know, was able to turn a natural sourdough. Now, we did this story on a German baker who goes back to the old way. Um, He really uses natural fermentation. Um, He lives in the same factory, um, you know, small bake shop that he bakes in and has, you know, his family has for 12 generations, which is unbelievable. Yes. And he also bakes a family of these sort of dark pretzel-like breads and pastries. So it's not just the, the authentic pretzels, but it's breads and breadsticks and all sorts of pastries made in their fashion. So it's a real art. And I think he is considered sort of the god of it in Germany. Congratulations on another beautiful issue. I know spring um, on its way. And so I hope that you will yes. come back and dish. Um, thank and, you, Jamie. Of I course. always love to. Well, thank you. I'm glad, always glad to have you. And because we've only skimmed the surface of sampling the world's best baked goods and bakers from India to Russia to Lancaster, Pennsylvania, Savour visited kitchens around the world to prove that baking is no doubt a means of expressing love and care. And the wide and wonderful world of sweet and savory can be found in Savour magazine, the global baking issue on newsstands now. There's so much more to read, learn, and cook from the magazine. So search for delicious inspiration at Savour.com and follow on social at Savour. Stacey, we'll talk soon. Thanks, Jamie. Can't Thank wait. you. Look forward to it. As the delicious conversation continues, lots more to please your palate right after this. Welcome back. Chef Jamie Gwen in your radio, Feeding Your Soul. 
I am all about supporting women in business, my girlfriends, women-run companies. You get the picture, right? I believe we should raise our girls to be strong, smart, and bold. And these next two women exemplify that. Women-owned businesses make up nearly half the U.S. market, employing millions and generating trillions each year. Yet three in four women say it's really tough to get the business funding that they need. Joining us are two women who know the challenges facing women entrepreneurs. They're here to discuss a unique initiative called She's Next, created to help women founders. And I am thrilled to support. Susan Carrere is a powerhouse with Visa. And Doria Roberts is the owner and artist of the Tipple and Rose Tea Parlor and Apothecary in Atlanta, who is tapping into that community power of this new movement. And I welcome you both, ladies. Glad to have you. Thank you. Thank yes, you of course. Me. Susan, let's start with you. Tell us about She's Next, please, how it's helping women business owners. And kudos to you and to Visa, by the way. Thank you, Jamie. Honestly, I think you hit it uh, right on the head when you said small businesses, backbone of the economy. Uh, female founders and their businesses on the rise, right? So as the largest global small business payment network around the world, we thought it important now to use the power of our global brand and our digital know-how to shine a spotlight on their efforts. So we've teamed up with Rebecca Minkoff of the Female Founder Collective to do just that, Jamie. That's terrific. Uh, Doria, is Mm -hmm. this a visa movement Mm-hmm. supporting you, helping you? How do you believe it helps businesses like yours? And congratulations to you, by the way. Your you. tea parlor was recently ranked third in the U.S. by Travel and Leisure in the mm-hmm. April 2018 issue, number one in Atlanta by Eater Atlanta. And on yeah. this show, we live and breathe by Eater. So <laughs> <laughs> so you should know, Doria, that's a big yeah. deal. Um, yeah. I love, you have 15 kinds of honey and a one-of-a-kind tea sniffing bar, and I can't wait yeah. to visit. <laughs> that you mentioned are, have been really uh, great moments. Um, you know, unfortunately, they're punctuated by, you know, the daily struggle of keeping the lights on. You know, I was just saying, you know, our, our ice machine is currently broken. So mm-hmm. with all of those things, it's great. Um, but with uh, the She's Next initiative, it, it feels like another great moment, another highlight, but it also feels more like a true momentum and, and that we could move forward, actually, um, with the resources that they are providing uh, that could make us a little more competitive online uh, with social media, um, e-commerce, which is huge. Um, and hopefully, you know, we could transform uh, from being a local business to possibly, you know, a global brand one day. So I'm um, looking forward to seeing uh, and building uh, with this community. I think that's a wonderful goal. Susan, I know that there was a survey done by Visa, which motivated this new movement. Can you share some of uh, or reveal some of the findings? The survey looked at motivators, and it was a number of things that uh, Doria touched on, meaning and purpose, um, financial independence, and flexibility. The work has to fit around their lives. On the challenge front, though, uh, Jamie, we had a couple of things that probably won't surprise you, right? So working capital, uh, less than 2% of venture today goes to female founders. So we have to get in front of that and figure out how to level the playing field. And then skills and training, especially those around digital and social marketing, right? If you are a brand today, whether you are physical or omni-channel, you've got to use technology to promote and reach customers. So those are the things we've poured into our program, which we are using to promote them, 
use our large platform, promote these brands like we're doing today with Doria, invest in them, and make sure that what we do when we have these workshops around the world, they are immersive and focused on training them around the skills they can deploy in their businesses and just broaden their network. So give them access to experts and other expertise to level the playing field. Why do you think that 2% number is so frighteningly low? I mean, that's deplorable if you think about the population in the U.S. and the fact that women women run businesses, women owned businesses are so much less supported. Uh, I know that the visa movement will make change, but on a global scale, how can all of us contribute to making a difference? That, that number is shocking to me. Look, I think venture is one of several ways to think about working capital, right? We, what we hear from entrepreneurs is in some cases, they don't actually know where to go and find or access these resources, right? So in some ways, we have to bring the media, bring the resources closer to them so that they're more visible. But you're right, it's not good enough, which means that it's up to people like us, those of us in private sector, and it's also actually up to governments, right? If you look at a community like Atlanta, you know, this is one of those communities where public and private sector have gotten together to actually raise the bar for small businesses. Georgia is now ranked number two as a state for small-owned businesses, and you can see the efforts of government and private sector coming together on behalf of small businesses. We all have to do so much more. It's not just venture. It is everyone's responsibility. Thank you both for giving voice to the collective strength that is women and uh, the local, the national, the global economy. Uh, I certainly appreciate your time, and I am proud to support. Thank Thank you. Thank you both. And so that brings us to the end of another hour of scintillating conversation, because if it betters the world or it betters your belly, well, then you'll hear it here. I'll leave you with my last bite for the hour, my last answer tidbit of culinary conversation. If you're planning a big game party and you need a last minute marinade, or you just want to add this wonder to your repertoire. Did you know that beer is a brilliant marinade? Oh, yes, it is. It adds tremendous juiciness to chicken and fab flavor to beef. And it's a very simple six-ingredient marinade that I love that I can share. The longer you let the chicken or the meat soak it up, the better, by the way. You need a 12-ounce bottle of lager or pale ale. You probably have one in the cooler ready and waiting, right? You need the zest and juice of a couple of oranges or tangerines, a little bit of olive oil, some soy sauce, a garlic clove, and some red pepper flakes. And you simply mix it together and marinate. Now, I'm going to post the recipe on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Chef Jamie Gwen right now because I know you are running to the kitchen to make it. And I look forward to sharing more delicious dishes and wonderful recipes here in your radio in the weeks and months to come this year. So please do tune in, find podcasts of shows you might've missed on iTunes and know that I'm always serving up seconds at chefjamie.com. Wishing you a delicious weekend. May the best team win. And I'll meet you here once again, real soon. I'm chef Jamie Gwen signing off. I thank you for listening and I hope you continue to eat well. (laughs) 